Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, presumably, they're still there in that same upper room. That's where, kind of where they've been um, all along here from the time, uh, from just before the crucifixion, uh, probably up here to this, to this point as well. And uh, it mentions here the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is a Jewish feast day. It's one of those feast days that God had laid out for Israel. Uh, In fact, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, go to Leviticus chapter 23, the Pentecost is is kind of a New Testament name for this feast, and the, uh, the, we'll see why it's called Pentecost here. But uh, Leviticus 23 is one of the passages that lays out these various feast days that God had given to Israel. And you see, you may see how, uh, for instance, in verse 5, it mentions the Passover. In verse 6, it mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All right. In uh, starting, starting in verse 9, verse 10, it talks about the Feast of First Fruits. All right. Now, altogether, there are there are seven of these feasts, and you see those three I just mentioned all come in the spring. All right. Now, if you skip down to um, down to to about verse twenty seven, uh, it mentions some other feasts. We're gonna we're gonna come back to uh, some earlier verses, but verse twenty seven uh, talks about the the Day of Atonement. All right. And you have the, uh, in fact, I skipped over one. There's, in verse 24, you have the blowing of trumpets. So there's the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in verse 34. Now, those three feasts are all in the fall. Okay, now the, now this, the Hebrew religious year begins in the spring, and those first three feasts are in the, the first month of the Hebrew year, which would be like, like April in our calendar. Uh, all of the, the uh, fall feasts are in the seventh month of that year, which would be like September. Okay, and those, those feasts, the spring feasts and the fall feasts, they, they all symbolize events that were going to take place with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the spring feasts point to things that took place uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming. The Passover, certainly the, the killing of that lamb there and the blood being applied, pointed to the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, where the leaven had to be put out of their homes, and there are, there are connections that can be made between that and the burial of Christ. And in the same way that the Hebrews had to have the leaven out of their homes before, before uh, that first day of unleavened bread, Christ's body, in which he bore sin, and leaven is a type of sin, was taken out and, and put in the grave before uh, that first day of unleavened bread. 
And then within that, that week of unleavened bread, which was actually a seven-day feast, within that period of time, you have the, the Feast of Firstfruits, uh, which speaks of the resurrection of Christ, the firstfruits of them that slept. And in fact, the, the events that those feasts talked about, the events that those feasts uh, showed in type and shadow, were fulfilled on the day of the feast, so that Christ was killed on the day of Passover. Uh, in the same way, the leaven had to be put out of their home before the first day of unleavened bread. He was buried before that first day of unleavened bread, and he rose on the Feast of Firstfruits. Uh, you see how all those spring feasts speak of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, the fall feasts also have significance of events that are going to take place, but they have to do with the second coming of Christ. So the, the spring feasts have to do with his first coming. The fall feasts have to do with his second coming, uh, so that the, the blowing of trumpets, the, the feast of atonement, the Day of Atonement, and the um, Feast of Tabernacles all speak of things that are going to take place with Christ's second coming. But in between, in between the, the spring feasts and the fall feasts, you have this day of Pentecost. And in Leviticus 23, if you look at verse 15, you can see why, it, why it's called the day of Pentecost. Verse 15 says, Ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Now, it's referring back to the Feast of first fruits in verses 9 through 14. It says, uh, if, you, if you skip back up to verse 11, it says, He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you see how that feast, as it's defined here in Scripture, it always comes on the morrow after the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ rose on that Sunday morning, which, which would have been the feast day in that year that, that uh, he was crucified and rose again. Now, you see that the date of Pentecost is, is determined based on the date of the Feast of Firstfruits. So starting from... That morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that they brought the sheaf of the wave offering, they count seven Sabbaths. All right, so, so there's a Sabbath every seven days. They count seven of those, which bring you to 49. And then the next day, the 50th day, is the, the uh, Feast of Pentecost. And that's what the, the name Pentecost speaks of, that, that uh, word penta. Um, you know, if you think about a pentagram as five sides, that, that name Pentecost is referring to the fact that there's 50 days from the Feast of First Fruits to the day of Pentecost. And, and you see, uh, then verse 16 says, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. So you have these seven Sabbaths, 49 days, and then um, the, the morrow, the day after, that seventh Sabbath, shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Now, uh, some interesting things about the, the Feast of Pentecost is that... that um, you have it, it talks about them bringing these loaves. 
Okay. Now, that's not that's not uh, particularly unusual. There were many times where they would offer uh, bread to the Lord and grain and, and these different things. All of the offerings were not just animal sacrifices. There are other kinds of sacrifices as well. But here it says specifically that these loaves are to be baked with leaven. Now, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, certainly, and in that, that Feast of first fruits, they offer grain unto the Lord, but no leaven. And in fact, leaven, remember, remember leaven throughout the Bible, it pictures sin. And the same way that leaven, uh, you know, the scripture says a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. The same way that leaven will work its way through a, a lump of dough, that's the way sin spreads and, and works. And it's interesting here that specifically it says that these loaves that are to be offered on the day of Pentecost are to be baked with leaven. Now, what that, what that tells you, part of what that tells you, is that these wave loaves do not represent Christ, all right? Uh, Christ wouldn't be, wouldn't be represented here on the day of Pentecost with, with leaven, with loaves of bread baked with leaven, um, but, but rather these loaves are speaking of humanity, okay? And so this feast says something about something that God is going to begin to do with man that he had not done previously. Uh, it says that, that uh, these loaves will be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock, two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord, with their meat offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. Uh, verse 19 says, You shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And it says, The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. Now, notice the loaves here when it says they're sacrifice. There was an altar of burnt sacrifice in the temple where you would bring uh, certain animal sacrifices. But one of the rules of the altar of burnt sacrifice is that no leaven was allowed to be offered on it. Uh, only, only um, you know, there were other things besides, besides lambs that were offered there on the altar. But no leaven was to be offered on it. Um, here you see... Uh, these wave loaves, these loaves that are, that are offered with leaven, the priest waves them before the Lord. And so the way they're offered is not by setting them on the altar, but the priest here, it, it's, it's not completely clear what it means when it says that he waves them before the Lord, but he probably, probably lifts them up to the Lord, um, you know, showing that this is a, a sacrifice unto the Lord. And, and you see it describes how uh, the priest, as with many of the other sacrifices, he, he receives that sacrifice. It says it'll be for the priest. But uh, verse 21 says, Ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be an holy convocation unto you. Ye shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings through your generations. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, it says, Thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, uh, even though this feast is not necessarily called the feast of first fruits, you see it involves first fruits as well. 
right? Uh, it talks about those loaves being the first fruits unto the Lord. And the reason you can have several different feasts that involve first fruits is that you had different harvests that came at different times. So the barley harvest came at a different time than the wheat harvest. And, and so you would have first fruits of different crops. But here on the day of Pentecost, there's this, this first fruits. And, and notice how it mentions, even in connection with that feast of Pentecost, the first fruits goes to the Lord, and then whatever's left over goes to the poor, right? It talks about the gleanings there at the end, that they're supposed to leave a little bit in the field. The first thing they take out of the field has to go to the Lord, and they're to leave a little bit in the field for the poor to come and, and uh, have those things. But uh, you see how they bring these these loaves to the Lord. And, you know, there was a wave offering back on the, the Feast of first fruits. If you go back to verse 11, uh, there on the Feast of first fruits, they're to bring a sheaf. They bring not, not uh, loaves of bread, but the actual sheafs of grain. And in verse 11, it says, He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. All right, and there it talks about a wave offering and the and the priest offering this thing as a wave, and and of course the day of first fruits spoke of the resurrection of Christ, and on that day of the resurrection you have uh, the Lord Jesus Christ being physically raised from the dead, and so these wave offerings speak of some kind of movement, some kind of action, and so we should expect on the day of Pentecost here, just as. Just as the the Feast of Passover was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ, just as the Feast of Unleavened Bread is fulfilled in the burial of Christ, just as the Feast of Firstfruits is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ, we should expect that on that Pentecost, on that, that day, that morrow after the Sabbath, 50 days later, something is going to happen. Right? We've seen, we've seen these things being fulfilled on these feast days. And if, if that wave offering is any indication, what we should be expecting is some kind of movement, something, something, uh, some activity, something taking place that involves something moving from one place to another. Let's go back to our, our text in the book of Acts because that's exactly what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 2. Now, remember that the Lord Jesus Christ had told the disciples to wait at Jerusalem until, if you go back to uh, Acts, look at Acts chapter 1, and, well, if you look at at verse 8, it says, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Right? And that's what they're waiting for there at Jerusalem. Now, if you think about the time element, uh, if it's 50 days from that Feast of, of First Fruits to the to the uh, day of Pentecost, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, is there with the disciples for 40 days, right? So you got 40 days from the resurrection of Christ to the ascension of Christ, where he returns then into heaven, and then it would leave 10 days from that ascension that we read about in Acts chapter 1 to this day of Pentecost. And so they're there, with, it says, in, with one accord in one place. And verse 2 says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now here what we see on the day of Pentecost is we see this coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just as the, the, um, the, the wave offering on the Feast of Firstfruits 
symbolized the way Christ was physically going to rise from the grave. He was going to go from one place to another. Here, the wave offering on the day of Pentecost symbolizes another, another movement, but it's the Holy Spirit coming from heaven here on these, on these disciples. Now, the Holy Spirit, realize that the Holy Spirit uh, certainly had been, you know, had been active among men uh, all, you know, all along. There are some differences, though, in how the Holy Spirit worked before Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit would work with believers after Pentecost. Uh, you, remember, you remember David in the Psalms prays for the Lord to take not his Holy Spirit from him. Now, David had good reason to pray that because David was the second king of Israel and the first king of Israel, Saul, had had the Holy Spirit of God at one time and then the Holy Spirit left him, right? I mean, Saul was was prophesying with the prophets. Saul was... was, even as, as king of Israel, uh, had that, that Holy Spirit of God, and God took away the Holy Spirit from Saul. And, and he promised David that he wouldn't take his spirit away from David. But, uh, but there's, you know, there's an example of something different in the Old Testament, in that even the, the Holy Spirit that was in them, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit indwelt them in the same way that the, the Holy Spirit indwells believers today. Um, the, uh, you can think of other, other examples. Remember the judge, Samson, and how the Holy Spirit would come upon him and they would empower him to do these, these great works, right? And they would empower him to, to uh, be able to defeat enemies and, and that kind of thing. But the Spirit would come upon him and then the Spirit would go away, okay? And, and uh, this is something we're going to see here after the day of Pentecost. You don't have the Holy Spirit coming and going. These people that receive the Holy Spirit here on the day of Pentecost, they never lose the Holy Spirit. And even we'll, we'll see that there's some differences even between what the Holy Spirit was doing there on the day of Pentecost and what the Holy Spirit is doing today. But be assured that when, when you become a believer in Christ today, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and that Holy Spirit never leaves you. It never, it never goes away. Go to Romans chapter 8. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 8 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Uh, you see how it describes there the state of the believer as having the Holy Spirit in them and that Holy Spirit of God uh, dwelling in them and, and them being in that Spirit. Okay. Now realize that all, all of this was something new here for these disciples on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the, the Lord began to do some things. Go back to Acts chapter 2. The Lord began to do some things that he had, he had previously promised that he was going to do, uh, but, but that hadn't been done before. Um, in fact, Christ, speaking of that coming of the Holy Spirit, said that he had to go away first so that he could send the, another comforter, he could send the, the Holy Spirit to come and, and do some things. This work that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to do on the day of Pentecost could not be done before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. 
See, these things had to, had to happen first before the things that are going to begin to be done here on the day of Pentecost. And you see that the coming of the Holy Spirit there uh, comes in a, a very visible and very obvious form. Now, when a person receives the Holy Spirit today, when you, when you believe the gospel of the grace of God and that Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, um, you aren't going to experience what, what these disciples experience here. Um, in, in fact, you might, when you believe the gospel, I mean, some people have a, a very emotional type experience. Other people, uh, you know, certainly might have a, a, an assurance of salvation and yet not have that, that emotional type thing. But the Lord doesn't want there to be any question about what's taking place here. And so he, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit comes here with a, a display that is not only visual, but auditory. They, they hear the sound of a rushing wind. Uh, and it's, you see this uh, supernatural ability that they have to speak with tongues. Right? So, so verse 2, again, as it describes the coming there of that Holy Spirit, it says that there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. It says, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. So there's this sound. They see this, this picture uh, of these cloven tongues of fire. Now, this isn't the first time that the Holy Spirit has appeared in a physical form. Remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized in the Jordan River, there the Holy Spirit took the form of a dove and, and uh, set upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it's this form of, of these uh, tongues of fire. And you see it says that they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now what's going on here is something that they had been told was going to happen. Uh, in fact, if you go, go back to Matthew chapter 3, in fact, what's taking place there on the day of Pentecost is a baptism. But it's not a baptism with water. Uh, here in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is speaking, and he's talking about you know, why he is there baptizing. And, of course, John the Baptist comes baptizing with water. And uh, verse 11, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, you see here that John the Baptist mentions three baptisms in these couple of verses. Uh, he mentions baptism with water. He mentions baptism with the Holy Ghost and baptism with fire. And it's, it's important in these things, you know, when you're talking about baptisms in the Bible, not every baptism in the Bible involves water, right? So John is clear his baptism involved water. And, you know, of course, Jesus' disciples as well baptized people with water. But here John says that the one who comes after him, speaking of Christ, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to perform a baptism not with water, but with the Holy Ghost. Okay? And he also mentions a baptism with fire. 
Uh, notice in verse 12, it, it says that his fan is in his hand. This is speaking about the, the way that on a, on a, uh, a threshing floor, you know, the threshing is to separate the, the kernel, the wheat, from the chaff, and then they would use a winnowing fan, a big fan, that would blow away that light chaff so that you would be left with just the, just the, uh, the, the kernel, just the, the uh, part that you want to use. And it says that his fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his wheat into the garner, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see that there's a, a separation to take place there. And, and when verse 11 mentions the, the baptism with the Holy Ghost and with fire, you see what the fire relates to is it's that burning up of the chaff. Now, the, the baptism with the Holy Ghost and with fire is not one baptism, it's two baptisms. And as John is speaking these words, there are believers there and there are unbelievers there. And he's saying that some of you, the Lord Jesus Christ, when, when he comes, the Christ, the Messiah, he is going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And there are others of you that are going to be the chaff that are going to be burned up with unquenchable fire. Now, don't, don't get confused about the fact that, that over in our text in Acts 2, that when the Holy Spirit comes there, uh, don't be confused about the fact that it takes that form of fire. They aren't being baptized with fire. They're being baptized with the Holy Ghost. But the fact that that, that Holy Spirit takes that form of fire, um, you remember how the Bible described the, the uh, burning bush that Moses saw, that it, it was burning, but it wasn't consumed, right? Here are these disciples that those tongues of fire come upon them, but they aren't consumed like the chaff is that he describes here. Uh, they're, not, they're not baptized with the fire in the sense that this verse is describing. They're baptized with that Holy Ghost, and they're not consumed by the fire. Why? Because they're believers in Christ, because they're the wheat. They're not the chaff that's going to be consumed. And, and so you see those baptisms there. Now, that baptism with the Holy Ghost that John is speaking about in Matthew 3 is what these, these disciples are experiencing in Acts chapter 2. They are being baptized with that Holy Ghost. Uh, go back there to Acts chapter 2. You see that, that verse 4 says that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Not only is the, the Holy Ghost upon them, you know, these cloven tongues of fire are, are sitting upon them, but uh, they're filled with the Holy Ghost. And you see that the evidence of that is that they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so this isn't just, a, just an external witness here, you know, the, the rushing of the mighty wind, the sound that they can hear, uh, the, what they can see as far as these cloven tongues of fire uh, sitting upon the others, but that Holy Spirit comes inside of them and something comes out of them, these, these other tongues, these other languages that they speak in as an evidence that the Holy Spirit is not just there present in the room as the sound of the rushing wind was. It's not just present upon them as the, the cloven tongues of fire are, but the Holy Spirit is within them. And in fact, it says that they are filled with the Holy Ghost. And even, you know, even with the warnings that they had had about how this was going to take place, that they were going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost, that power was going to come upon them at Jerusalem, uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, put yourself in the, in the place of these disciples, you can imagine 
what it would have been like to, to uh, experience that. Uh, the Lord presents all of this so that there's no other way for them to explain what's going on, but that they would understand this is that other comforter. This is the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ said would come. And here's the evidence that we have of it. We hear it, we see it, and it's within us, and it's, and it's making us able to speak things. Words are coming out of us that we don't know. Um, that's, that's the position that those were, disciples were in. There's a reason why that day of Pentecost comes in the middle of those feast days. You see, the day of Pentecost represented a, a change, a, a transition. Um, it, it came, you know, 50 days after the spring feast, so it comes in the middle. In fact, some people refer to it as the feast in the middle. Uh, it's in the middle of those spring feasts and those, and those fall feasts. And they're in that gap between the, the incarnation of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and his second coming. Here you have the Holy Spirit coming there on that day of Pentecost. And, and the Holy Spirit then is going to be that comforter that is always there with believers from that time up, up until the coming of Christ. And we see that beginning here uh, on this day of Pentecost as those disciples are gathered there together in that room in one accord in one place. But they're not going to stay there in that room because the Lord told them that they were going to receive power and then they were going to be witnesses unto Him. And that Holy Spirit in them is going to continue to be a witness of uh, not just what Christ had accomplished, but now what He was continuing to do. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.